It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, July 31, 2020, the last day of July. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson will be speaking about Olivia de Havilland, who passed away last week. He also has a very good summary of the 2020 Emmy nominations. Amazon Prime's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, an Emmy favorite, came in second to Watchmen for most nominations for a single show, with 20 of them. But the biggest news is that Netflix smashed the record for most nominations of any network, studio, or streaming platform, with 160 in total, breaking the record set only last year by HBO. But we start today's episode with music librarian Farah Mohammed with a musical moment. She will be highlighting International Friendship Day. That's actually a thing. And yes, yes, you're probably wondering, did this start because of a greeting card company? Yes, Hallmark started this years ago. But it is a thing. The UN says it's a thing. It's very popular in many parts of the world. And you're going to hear some nice songs today having to do with friendship and support and all good things, including the Beatles. So stick around for that. Here is Farah Muhammad. Hello, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and today we celebrate sharing the human spirit through friendship. What I mean is celebrating International Friendship Day. It's not easy living in this world, what with the many challenges we face today, poverty, violence, and human rights abuses, among many others, that undermine peace, security, development, and social harmony among the world's peoples. To confront these crises and challenges, their root causes must be addressed by promoting and defending a shared spirit of human solidarity that makes many forms, the simplest of which is friendship. The International Day of Friendship was proclaimed in 2011 by the UN General Assembly with the idea that friendship between peoples, countries, cultures, and individuals can inspire peace efforts and build bridges between communities. The resolution places emphasis on involving young peoples as future leaders in community activities that include different cultures and promote international understanding and respect for diversity. Therefore, The first Sunday of August is marked as International Friendship Day, though it is sometimes celebrated on different dates in different countries. People around the globe celebrate their friendships by exchanging gifts like flowers and cards. Exchanging friendship bands is one of the more popular traditions for this occasion as well. And of course, with the advent of social networking sites, Friendship Day is widely celebrated online. Now, on a more human level, we all know and value the importance of a good and long-lasting friendship. Meaningful friendships are good for us. One of the most overlooked benefits of friendships is that it helps to keep our minds and bodies strong. In fact, it's as important to our physical health as eating well and keeping fit. A recent Harvard study concluded that having solid friendships in our life 
even helps promote brain health. The people we bring into our lives as friends show us how to forgive, laugh, and make conversation. The basic components of any relationship, from our spouses to our co-workers, are all founded in friendship. These people help push us out of our comfort zones while still providing a safe emotional space for us to be totally ourselves. Friends help us to deal with stress, make better lifestyle choices that keep us strong and allow us to rebound from health issues and disease more quickly. Being social animals as we are, spending time with positive friends actually changes our outlook for the better. That means we're happier when we choose to spend time with happy people. All the more reason to leave that toxic friendship behind. Friends don't completely cure loneliness, but they do help us during lonely times. We learn how to accept kindness and also to reach out when we need help. Those painful times when we might be without friends also help us to appreciate the friendships that come in and out of our lives. In spending time with friends, we fill up our lives with great conversation, heartfelt caring, and support and laugh-out-loud fun. When we fall on hard times, friends are there to put things in perspective and help us. When we have success, they're smiling at our good fortune. We don't just live when we have healthy relationships. We thrive. So, the songs for today's playlist will reflect the importance of having good friends in our lives. Carol King is an American singer-songwriter who has enjoyed a long and illustrious career. She is perhaps one of the most successful female songwriters of the latter part of the 20th century, having written or co-written 118 pop hits on the Billboard Hot 100. King's major success began in the 1960s when she and her first husband, Jerry Goffin, wrote more than two dozen chart hits, many of which have become standards. Here is one such hit from her album entitled Tapestry. Here is You've Got a Friend, written in 1971. The lyrics can only be described as poignant, set to a great tune. Nothing is going right 
For my next number, this group needs no introduction. Formed in 1960 in Liverpool, England, these four youngsters took the world by storm by creating a wildly innovative new sound. The Beatles were integral to the evolution of pop music into an art form and to the development of the counterculture of the 1960s. Here are John, Paul, George and Ringo singing a song from their 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Their song, with a little help from my friends, was ranked number 311 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Yeah. 
Here's another great song that is poetic and heartfelt in nature. Lean on Me by American singer-songwriter Bill Withers, who sadly passed away earlier this year in March. He recorded several major hits, including Ain't No Sunshine and Just the Two of Us. Withers won three Grammy Awards and was nominated for six more. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005 and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015. Pretty impressive for someone who worked as a professional musician for just 15 years, from 1970 to 1985, before pursuing other pursuits. Lean On Me is ranked number 208 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Numerous other versions have been recorded, and it is one of only nine songs to have reached number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with versions recorded by two different artists. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on.
Here's a collaborative number sung by some of the biggest selling artists of all time Gladys Knight, Dionne Warwick, Stevie Wonder, and Sir Elton John. That's What Friends Are For is a song written and recorded in 1982, written by Britt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager. This was released as a charity single for AIDS research and prevention. It was a massive hit, becoming the number one single of 1986 in the United States and winning Grammy Awards for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals and Song of the Year. It raised over $3 million for its cause. These collaborative songs are quite interesting to listen to as it highlights the different and unique qualities in the singers' voices. Stevie Wonder also plays the mouth organ here. Keep smiling, keep shining, knowing you can always count on me, for sure. That's what friends are for. For good times and bad times, I'll be on your side forevermore. That's what friends are for.
Stand By Me is a song originally performed in 1961 by American singer-songwriter Ben E. King. According to King, the title was derived from and was inspired by a spiritual written by Sam Cooke called Stand By Me Father. There have been over 400 recorded versions of the song performed by many artists. In 2012, it was estimated that the song's royalties had topped $22.8 million, making it the sixth highest earning song of its era. In 2015, King's original version was inducted into the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as, and I quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, unquote. Here it is, Stand By Me by Ben E. King. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me Should tumble and fall, or the mountain should crumble to the sea. I won't cry, I won't cry, no, I won't shed a tear just as long as you stand, stand by me. And all that you've enjoyed today's playlist. No doubt, friendships are important to our well-being. Having a good friend is a wonderful asset, a person whom we can share our joys and sorrows.
So, in honor of International Friendship Day, be sure to reach out and tell that friend how special they are to you. That's what it's all about in this life. People needing people. Which brings to mind this last number, a song written by Jewel Stein and Bob Merrill for the 1964 musical Funny Girl. Here it is, the signature song sung by the incandescent voice of Barbara Streisand. I'll let her finish the show today. So, enjoy, and thanks for listening. Bye for now.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. But today, I'll mostly be discussing Tuesday's announcement of the Emmy Award nominations for 2020, as well as the recent passing of Olivia de Havilland, the great actress from Hollywood's golden era. Olivia de Havilland, an actress of whom it can be said, gained a certain kind of movie immortality, especially for her role in that colossal epic, Gone with the Wind. She passed away of natural causes last Sunday at her home in Paris and at the grand old age of 104, perhaps the very last star of Hollywood's fabled golden age of the 1930s and the 1940s. Although de Havilland is best remembered by casual movie fans for Gone with the Wind, she also built an illustrious film career beyond that one performance, and one punctuated by a successful legal fight to loosen the studio's grip on its contract actors and stars. Olivia de Havilland was both a classic movie beauty and an honored screen actress, whose very name and bearing suggest membership in a kind of aristocracy of old Hollywood. Though she was typecast earlier in her career as the demure ingenue, she would go on to earn bigger roles that led to five Academy Award nominations, two of which brought her the Oscar for To Each His Own in 1946 and The Heiress in 1949. Those roles came to her in no small part because of the resolve that she showed when she stood up to the studios and won a legal battle that helped push Hollywood into the modern era, perhaps surprising the powerful studio heads along the way who may not have expected such steel from an actress so softly attractive and at five foot three, so unintimidatingly small in physical stature. Olivia de Havilland had shown similar grit a decade earlier, when at just the age of 22, she held her own against her formidable co-stars, Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, and Leslie Howard, in 1939's Gone with the Wind. As Melanie, the fiancé and then wife of Howard's Ashley Wilkes, de Havilland brought both intelligence and grace to her portrait of the woman whose shy, forgiving, almost too kindly nature stood in sharp contrast to the often venomous jealousy of her high-spirited sister-in-law, Scarlett O'Hara. De Havilland's performance in Gone with the Wind led to her first Oscar nomination as Best Supporting Actress, though the award went to another member of the cast, Hattie McDaniel. But in the words of Robert Berkvist, writing this week in the New York Times, De Havilland's successful role in Gone with the Wind might have encumbered her with something often too stately and reserved, which she never entirely lost, though certainly a hint of mystery and suppressed emotional turmoil is present elsewhere in her list of more than 50 movies, especially the more difficult roles of the late 1940s. Olivia de Havilland had been under contract to Warner Brothers when Gone with the Wind's original director, George Cukor, working for MGM, 
invited her to audition for the role of Melanie. After getting the part, she had to plead with her studio boss, Jack Warner, to lend her to the MGM production, which was being overseen by David Oselznik. By then, she had already established herself at Warner Brothers as a heroine in some 20 movies, including the beginning of a long collaboration with a prolific director, Michael Cortez, which encompassed nine movies in all. But most notable among her many collaborations undoubtedly was a string of action features, costume dramas, and even westerns opposite the dashingly handsome Errol Flynn, eight in all, among them Captain Blood from 1935, The Charge of the Light Brigade in 1936, and most memorably for me and many others, I would think, The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, in which she played a rather upmarket, if still unworldly, Maid Marian. Certainly de Havilland and Flynn had great chemistry together and were such a popular on-screen couple that rumors flew of a real-life off-screen romance, fueled in part, no doubt, by Flynn's reputation as a roguish seducer known for betting his co-stars, as well as by reports that he was infatuated with her. But by all accounts, there was no truth to the whisperings of an affair, though some years later the famously reserved Olivia admitted to having a great crush on him and suggested that the circumstances at the time, principally the fact that he was married when they met, had stood in the way of a romance. Yet, so naughty and so charming, she said of him. Warner Brothers had signed de Havilland to a seven-year contract in 1935 on the strength of her performance that year as Hermia, the defiant daughter who resists an arranged marriage in Max Reinhardt's lavish film adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. De Havilland would give more naturalistic performances in the future, but here, as a young woman caught between the man she loves and the man her father requires her to marry, her emphatic passions fit into a film that gives Shakespeare a robust reading, to put it mildly. It's an accessible, unpretentious rendering of the play, with a forest set that's almost literally shimmering with fairy dust. The year before, in fact, she had made her professional stage acting debut while still a teenager in the same role in a Hollywood Bowl production by Reinhardt, where she was spotted. After her success in Gone with the Wind, she returned to Warner Brothers with the expectation of more challenging roles. But for the most part, they did not materialize. One exception was 1941's Hold Back the Dawn, in which she played an American school teacher who was seduced in Mexico by a wily European exile, played by the always debonair Charles Boyer. Her performance earned her another Oscar nomination, but this time she lost to her sister, Joan Fontaine, who won for Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. The two were rarely on speaking terms after that, and their sibling rivalry has been called the fiercest in Hollywood history. Yet, they remain the only sisters to win Best Actress Academy Awards. De Havilland's specialty was the demure, soulful beauty and well-mannered aristocrat of great virtue. Playing bad girls as a bore, she once claimed. I have always had more luck 
with good girl roles because they require more from an actress, she said. But the actor's soft exterior certainly concealed a much more hardened core. When more formulaic roles kept coming, de Havilland complained to the studio and was told that she had been hired because she photographed well and not because she was required to act. But Warners misread her determination as Olivia began to refuse roles that she considered unworthy of her talent. And as a result, the studio retaliated by suspending her several times for a total of six months. And after her standard Hollywood highly restrictive seven-year contract expired, insisted that because of the suspensions, she was still the studio's exclusive property for a further six months. As a consequence of this, Olivia de Havilland sued Warner Brothers in 1943. And the case dragged on for a year and a half, but she finally beat the system when the California Supreme Court upheld a lower court ruling in her favor in 1945. And what became known as the de Havilland decision established that a studio could not arbitrarily extend the duration of an actor's contract. But it also helped lead generally to the ending of restrictive contracts that had given the studios so much power over their stars. And by the end of the decade, the new rule of managers, agents, and high-rolling independent producers would irrevocably be on the rise in Hollywood. I had been told I would never work again if I won or if I lost, de Havilland later recalled. But when I won, they were impressed and didn't bear a grudge referring to the studio heads, especially at Warner's. Olivia de Havilland soon resumed her career, now as an independent force, free to negotiate with different studios, and she appeared in four films in rapid succession, all released in 1946. In one of those, the suspense thriller The Dark Mirror, she played twins, one good and one evil. And in her Oscar-winning performance in To Each His Own, she was an unwed mother who must give up her infant son when his father, her lover, a World War I flying ace, is killed in action. Two years later, in 1948, de Havilland took on one of her most demanding roles, for the snake pit, in which she played a young bride who becomes mentally ill and is sent to an institution. The film, directed by Anatoly Litvak, is an unflinching study of mental illness and the treatments available then, from narcotics to electroshock. Olivia was again nominated for a Best Actress Oscar, but did not win this time. Nevertheless, she would often recall it as one of her favorite roles. She did, however, capture her second Oscar the next year, in 1949, with The Heiress, directed by William Wyler, and adapted by Ruth and Augustus Goetz from their Broadway play based on Henry James' Washington Square. In it, de Havilland presents an affecting portrait of a wealthy but repressed reclusive young woman, dominated by her rigidly protective father, played by Ralph Richardson, but who becomes dazzled by a charming schemer, played by Montgomery Cliff. The heiress was also one of her favorite roles. The films I loved, she said in a 1964 interview, the great loves are The Snake Pit, The Heiress, and of course Gone with the Wind. But she did not love Hollywood itself. And in the 1950s, she startled the town when she abandoned it to live in Paris, 
with a new husband, though she kept her American citizenship. For Olivia, wrote William Stadium in a profile of her in Vanity Fair magazine in 2016, there was always the suggestion of decay and disappointment about Hollywood. Olivia Mary de Havilland was born on July 1, 1916, to British parents in Tokyo, where her father, Walter, a cousin of the aviation pioneer, Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, ran a firm of patent lawyers, though he was not a lawyer himself. In 1919, her mother Lillian, an elocution teacher, moved with Olivia and Joan, her younger sister by 15 months, to Saratoga, California, near San Francisco. The de Havilands then divorced, and Lillian married George M. Fontaine, a department store executive. Olivia's sister Joan, who would take her stepfather's surname as her stage name, passed away in 2013 at the age of 96. In the words of film critic Peter Bradshaw, it was as if Olivia and Joan were two sides of a single Hollywood diva, where de Havilland brought something rational and controlled to her performances. Fontaine was the fragile, emotional star of movies such as Rebecca and Letter from an Unknown Woman. Fontaine was more quiveringly vulnerable, a real Hitchcockian leading lady, wrote Bradshaw. She was more mercurial, more haunted, even sexier, it has to be said. While Olivia was the sister whose acting career had been favored early on by her mother, which is why Joan was not allowed to take on the family name. It seems neither sister could quite forgive the other for being in the movies. So when de Havilland stepped up to receive her Oscar for The Heiress in 1949, she appeared to ignore Fontaine's handshake, itself a cold gesture, in retaliation for being ignored when she had tried to congratulate Joan at the ceremony after Joan won for suspicion in 1941. Even in late middle age, the sisters quarreled over what kind of hospital care their mothers should receive the woman whose influence was at the heart of their two careers and stormy relationship. Olivia de Havilland was married twice. Both marriages ended in divorce. The first, in 1946, was to Marcus Aurelius Goodrich, a Texas-born novelist, screenwriter, and journalist. They had a son, Benjamin, and divorced in 1952. She then married Pierre Gallant, the author of Military Histories and at one point editor of the magazine Perry Match. That in 1955, after the couple had met in France. They moved to Paris, had a daughter, Giselle, and divorced in 1979. Olivia's son, Benjamin, died of Hodgkin's disease in 1991, but Giselle survives her. Before de Havilland was married that first time, she had had romantic relationships with such notables as actor James Stewart, entrepreneur Howard Hughes, and the director, John Houston, with whom she reunited for a time after her first divorce. By her account, she also turned away a smitten young future American president, John F. Kennedy, who was visiting Hollywood after his PT boat service in World War II. Though she had moved to Paris, Olivia de Havilland remained a creature of Hollywood for most of her career, but she did try her hand at theater again, making her Broadway debut in 1951, to good reviews, as Juliet 
in a short-lived production of Romeo and Juliet. She returned to Broadway in 1952 for another brief run in George Bernard Shaw's Candida and was last seen there in 1962 when she starred with Henry Fonda in A Gift of Time, adapted by Garson Kanan from Lael Tucker Vertenbreiker's book, Death of a Man, about the last days of the author's husband, Charles, who had died of cancer. The movies kept calling, however, and in 1952 she started one of her best films, My Cousin Rachel, based on the best-selling novel by Daphne du Maurier. She played the bride of an older man, and Richard Burton, in his Hollywood debut, played the son who thinks his attractive new stepmother may be capable of murder. By the time she traveled to Italy ten years later to film 1962's The Light in the Piazza, in which she played the protective mother of Yvette Mimieux's beautiful but mentally impaired young woman, de Havilland had appeared in some 40 movies and was living in semi-retirement in Paris in a five-story townhouse built around 1880. And it was in that very same townhouse where she had lived since 1958 that she died on Sunday. Olivia de Havilland had also published one book, a 1962 collection of light-hearted observations about life in France, entitled Every Frenchman Has One. But after this period, she only made a handful of movies, now in her mid-40s and receiving fewer acting offers and finding many scripts to be just too prurient for her tastes. An exception to that rule was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which gave her the opportunity in 1964 to co-star with Betty Davis, another Hollywood legend who had fought her own battles with the Hollywood studio system and who was by then nearing the end of her career. In 1965, de Havilland became the first woman to head the jury at the Cannes Film Festival, but she returned to feature films only occasionally after that, among them the hugely successful disaster movie Airport 77, in which she joined an ensemble cast of veteran Hollywood actors. Her last Hollywood movie was The Fifth Musketeer, made in 1979, in which she played the mother of Louis Cateurs, played by Beau Bridges. But otherwise, from the mid-60s onward, de Havilland's acting was largely confined to sporadic roles in television series like The Love Boat, or television movies like The Royal Romance of Charles and Diana in 1982, in which she played the Queen Mother, and in miniseries like Roots the Next Generation from 1979. Her work in the 1986 NBC miniseries Anastasia, the Mystery of Anna, in which she played a Russian empress, brought her a Golden Globe Award and an Emmy nomination. In 1999, she was honored with a party in Paris to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Gone with the Wind. At one point, as one of the hosts recalled, with a glass in her hand, Olivia de Havilland toasted the film and its leading actors, reminding those in the room present that she was the last one still standing. Let us raise a mint julep to our stars, she proclaimed, on that great veranda in the sky. But even when de Havilland was well into her 80s, she had not entirely given up the idea of returning to the spotlight. She was a presenter at the Academy Awards in 2003, and in 2009, she narrated a documentary, I Remember Better When I Paint, which is about the positive impact of art therapy on people with Alzheimer's disease. And by all accounts, she maintained 
a very active lifestyle, defying her advancing years. Olivia doesn't seem 99, Stadium had written in that 2016 Vanity Fair profile. Her face is unlined, her eyes sparkling, her fabled contralto voice soaring, her memory photographic. She could easily pass for someone decades younger, he said. Perhaps with one eye on posterity, Olivia de Havilland had even been in the news and in court once again in 2018 when she sued the FX network and Ryan Murphy Productions over her portrayal by Catherine Zeta-Jones in the miniseries Feud, Betty and Joan, about another rivalry, one between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, so not directly involving her. Nevertheless, de Havilland had maintained that her portrayal constituted unauthorized use of her name and likeness and showed her in a false light, as a hypocrite, with a public image of being a lady and a private one as a vulgarity using gossip, quote unquote. But a California appellate court dismissed the suit, ruling that the portrayal was, and I quote again here, not highly offensive to a reasonable person as a matter of law. Olivia de Havilland's readings of scripture on Christmas and Easter at the American Cathedral on the Avenue Georges V became annual events in Paris. And in 2010, Nicolas Sarkozy, then the president of France, awarded her the Legion of Honor as her association with a distant era of Hollywood glamour had definitely made her a living legend in her adopted city and all over the world. The Cote St. Luke Library has a number of Olivia de Havilland films that you can reserve to watch on DVD, including Gone with the Wind, The Snake Pit, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Captain Blood, Thank Your Lucky Stars, and They Died With Their Boots On. Many others are also available on VHS if you still have a VCR. One of my own favorites, The Strawberry Blonde, is coming up, among others, I'm sure, on Turner Classic Movies. Others are available on Amazon, Google Play, Apple TV, YouTube, and elsewhere. Oh, and speaking of the streaming giants, this week, Netflix has broken HBO's record for the most Emmy nominations ever. But HBO's Watchmen, the innovative spin on a difficult-to-adapt superhero graphic novel, did earn 26 nominations, the most of any single show for 2020. The U.S. Television Academy also gave streaming newcomers Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus their first nods as well, in yet another sign of the growing importance of digital technology to Hollywood. Anyway, here's some of what you need to know regarding nominations for the 72nd Emmy Awards. Amazon Prime's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, an Emmy favorite, came in second to Watchmen for most nominations for a single show, with 20 of them. But the biggest news is that Netflix smashed the record for most nominations of any network, studio, or streaming platform, with 160 in total, breaking the record set only last year by HBO. HBO came second, however, with 107 nominations. And the next closest competitor is NBC, which has 47 nominations. Uh, 
And overall, there were more nominations this year than ever before. As John Koblen in the New York Times notes this week, both Netflix and HBO have waged hard-fought battles against each other at the Emmys in recent years, and the Tuesday announcement has marked the second time that Netflix has bettered HBO in the total number of nominations. The two entertainment giants are these days competing even more directly now that HBO's parent company, AT&T, has unveiled their ambitious new streaming service, HBO Max. So far, not available in Canada. And with HBO's Emmy stalwart, Game of Thrones, finally out of the competition after a nearly decade-long run of dominance, the best drama race is open to newcomers and other programs that have yet to win big. HBO's operatic family saga, Succession, Netflix, more popular by the day, crime series, Ozark, with an impressive 18 nominations overall, by the way, and which stars both Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, as well as Netflix's lush period piece about Queen Elizabeth II, The Crown. They've all scored nominations in that category of best drama series. The Handmaid's Tale, the Hulu show that was voted Best Drama in 2017, has also received a nomination, although some critics were cool to its third season, which premiered more than a year ago. And there was also a surprise nod in the Best Drama category for the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, especially for its beatific Baby Yoda character. This Star Wars spin-off made its debut on the Walt Disney Company's multi-billion dollar streaming service last November and has scored 15 nominations overall. There was also in this category another at least slightly surprising nominee with Netflix Stranger Things. You know, I think it's fair to say that despite or maybe even because of these difficult times, some more socially engaged shows than these just mentioned just didn't make the cut. And I'm thinking here of FX Pose about the LGBTQ community in New York City during the 1980s and NBC's legal drama, The Good Fight, which we have on DVD at the library. Also available on DVD at the library are Succession, The Crown, Stranger Things, and The Handmaid's Tale. The top show for Apple, another recent entrant in the streaming wars uh, was in fact the Apple TV Plus series The Morning Show. Have you heard of that? This big budgeted backstage drama received several acting nominations, really quite curiously, including for supporting roles. And I say curiously because the series itself did not make the best drama category on its own. But anyway, um, the acting nominations include those for some heavy hitters, uh, such as Jennifer Aniston, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, Martin Short, and Steve Carroll. On the comedy side, Canada's own uh, Schitt's Creek, which has attracted a wide audience in the U.S. since it started streaming on Netflix, received 15 nominations, very impressive, for its final season. And Amazon Prime's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, last year's Best Comedy winner, is also in the mix with 20 nominations this year. Uh, 
And it will compete in that same category against Netflix Dead to Me, NBC's The Good Place, FX What We Do in the Shadows, Netflix The Kominsky Method, and two HBO shows, Insecure and Curb Your Enthusiasm. The library has on DVD past seasons of many of these, including The Good Place, The Kaminsky Method, Insecure, and of course, that perennial library favorite, Curb Your Enthusiasm, but all of which I highly recommend. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Rachel Brosnahan is again nominated in the Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series category. She won for her performance last year, but faces stiff competition this time, I would think, from especially Insecure's Issa Rae. Not to mention, eh, I'm thinking outsider possibilities here, uh, Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek and Dead to Me's Christina Applegate, among other nominees in that category. There's just no time to go through everything. <laughs> the Emmy ceremony itself is, if we can actually call it that in this uh, time of the pandemic, is set to take place. And I say that because it will almost certainly be without an in-house audience uh, on September 20th. It will definitely be broadcast by ABC and hosted by Jimmy Kimmel for the third time. But will it be virtual? Will it be live? Will the winners deliver acceptance speeches via Zoom? I don't think we know yet. And what what even anyway is an awards show ceremony in the middle of a pandemic? I guess we'll find out. The Television Academy has just provided too little information so far. I guess maybe they don't know for sure themselves. But with ratings for live television events surging in recent months, I would think that a charmingly makeshift awards show that night could just be the thing to reignite interest in the Emmys, which have been slipping in the ratings in recent years. Mike Hale, writing in the New York Times, notes uh, that at a time when the number of television series has hit an all-time high, with more than, get this, 500 of them last year alone, the number of Emmy submissions has risen by 15%, and the Academy has expanded the number of nominees accordingly. And that, of course, is why there are so many nominees this year. The Best Actress in a Drama category has stacked up to be one of the most competitive this year. Certainly the most star-studded, I would think. Olivia Colman's portrayal of Queen Elizabeth II in The Crown is nominated. And an Emmy win would make a nice compliment, I would think, to the Golden Globe that she has already received for that role. Not to mention the Oscar she took home last year for her portrayal of Queen Anne in The Favourite. The four-time Emmy winner, Laura Linney, uh, one of the stars of the crime drama Ozark, as I mentioned earlier, also lent her a nomination, as has Jennifer Aniston, who plays an overwhelmed news anchor on The Morning Show. For the former friend star, it is her first nomination in 11 years when she was last nominated for a guest appearance on 30 Rock. Last year's winner, Jodie Comer, a star of AMC's Killing Eve, is again this year also a contender for that same critically acclaimed comedy drama spy series, as is her oft-nominated Canadian cast member, cast mate, excuse me, Sandra Oh, who has never won an Emmy, believe it or not, 
the American actress Zendaya, um, the young American actress Zendaya, received her very first Emmy nomination for HBO's rather risque high school drama Euphoria. Uh, and just how competitive is this best actress in a drama category? Well, snubs include such bigwigs as Reese Witherspoon for The Morning Show, Nicole Kidman for Big Little Lies, Viola Davis for How to Get Away with Murder, and Elizabeth Moss, a previous winner for The Handmaid's Tale. But probably it is the limited series category that has become the Emmy ceremonies, excuse me, the Emmy ceremonies, oh wait, I did say that, <laughs> most glamorous and intriguing one. Given its major stars and the huge blockbuster budgets that have been invested in recent years by cable networks and streaming companies into single season short-lived shows. This year's contest will be a showdown between two very ambitious programs that tackle social issues. Mrs. America, the 1970s and 80s era drama from both FX and Hulu that chronicles the battle over the U.S. Equal Rights Amendment, and the dark superhero drama Watchmen, the first season of which the library should be hopefully receiving soon on DVD. The other nominees in the category of Best Limited Series are Netflix Unbelievable, a crime drama show with Toni Collette about a young woman accused of lying about a sexual assault, which has been one of that streaming service's most popular original series this past year, along with another Netflix um, original, Unorthodox, which I spoke here about a few weeks back. Uh, and which tells the story of a young Hasidic woman in Brooklyn. The other nominee in this category is Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere, based on the very popular at the library 2017 novel of that very same name by Celeste Ng, starring Carrie Richardson and also the very, very busy performer-producer Reese Witherspoon. This is a 1990s-era drama, which you may know, set in Ohio about the enigmatic lives of two mothers from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. If I understand correctly, not having read the book or seen the series myself. The best actress in a limited series will probably be a battle between Kate Blanchett, who plays the controversial conservative firebrand Phyllis Shafley, uh, whom I remember well, uh, in that series, Mrs. America, and also um, Regina King, the masked hero of, or heroine, I should say, if that's not a politically incorrect term, uh, from The Watchmen. Kerry Washington is also nominated um, for Little Fires Everywhere, along with Octavia Spencer for Netflix, Self Made, and Shira Haas which is great for Netflix and Orthodox. Now, what do James Corden, Seth Myers, and Jimmy Fallon all have in common? Can you guess? Yes, you can. They were all snubbed, snubbed, and snubbed in the talk show category. Nominated again this year is John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, which has won the talk show category the last four years in a row, and almost certainly quite Deservedly so. 
James Corden, the TV, the CBS late night host who follows Stephen Colbert, had been a mainstay in the talk show category in recent years. But on Tuesday, he was left out. Maybe because for the some reason, the category's nominees were winnowed from six to five. Jimmy Fallon, the NBC host, has been overlooked by Emmy voters in the category for a fourth consecutive year. So I think it's safe to say they, they, they don't really like him. John Oliver will compete against Trevor Noah's The Daily Show, Samantha Bee's Full Frontal, Stephen Colbert's The Late Show, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. And you have to think that the Emmy voters will strongly take into account how they've had to handle putting on shows from their homes during the lockdown. I think that's going to be a a big thing when it comes uh, time for them to vote. I guess I should have mentioned it earlier, but one happy surprise this year is certainly what we do in the shadows uh, in the best comedy series category. This is a droll, highly satirical FX vampire comedy show, which is a critical favorite, but one that I wouldn't have thought had much of a chance at the Emmys. How wrong I was, and happily so. Zoe Kazan's performance in The Plot Against America is definitely one of my favorite performances of the past year in movies, television, in any media form you might think of. So I would think it's definitely an oversight that she was not nominated this year. Um, in fact, the, adapt- the adaptation of the Philip Roth novel as a whole received only one nomination for cinematography, and that's uh, very disappointing. I think the plot against America is, um, is one of the best things on TV in the past year. But in general, there are, forgive me, just too many nominations to consider in any greater depth. So I think I'd better end it here before um, you lose your patience and I lose my mind. So I'm going to say that's all for now. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Co-St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this installment and that you will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cotesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.